forgive yourself for the past things that you did because you did the best that you could. Realize that most of the things you're holding on to were not really your fault. Get comfortable saying what you want and what your dreams are. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. Today on the podcast, we're with Mark Drager. He's a host, he's a moderator, and he blends wit and vulnerability to connect with incredible people and engage audiences. Mark is the founder of Phantom Media, the creator and host of the We Do Hard Things podcast. Mark, I'm pumped to have you here. Welcome to the show. Oh man, Jordan, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. So to kick it off, you you speak about how music, I think, has become such a bigger part of your life in the last two years. What What's like the tune you're listening to now or what music do you love? Oh, my goodness. What a great opening question. I am obsessed. <laughs> this is such a random thing. Even before I jumped on, I'm obsessed with, with ELO right now. Do you know ELO. the band from the 70s, Electric Light Orchestra, a British group? Um, you, may know, you may know some of their hits. You may not, but... Um, uh, yeah, early mid seventies. I'm I'm a big fan of of the like mid sixties to mid seventies type of music. So, uh, Electric Light Orchestra. They have an album. Uh, there's a song, uh, a telephone, telephone, okay. telephone line or something. Tightrope is another one. If I played their music for you, you'd go, Oh yeah, I know that from movies. Like it's just it was so prominent, and they became such a big like mid seventies band that all of the movies produced in the 90s were licensed, all the Adam Sandler movies, all of the movies okay. in the 90s were licensing this music because it was just so prominent in their childhood. I'm just re-exposing myself to it. Do you ever, do you ever find a, a group or an artist where you're like, I can't believe I've lived this long and not heard this yet? Oh yeah, all, all the time. Mark, what about, you know, what type of potential did you think you had uh, maybe in your, your teens or, or after high school, like bring us back to a bit of who you are and, and maybe what might've built the foundation for who you are today. Oh, thank you. That's, that's a great question too. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just loving these. Um, you, you know what it is when I was a, a teenager, I didn't have a lot of self-esteem. I think like many people, right? Those who look like they know what they're doing and talking about are just fronting. You know, they're all, everybody's insecure. And those who don't look like they know what they're talking about, they're not fronting because they're just as insecure as everyone else. And so uh, as a teenager, it was this blend of me on one side, I knew that I was a natural leader because as a kid, uh, as as a teenager, even in, in high school, I kind of realized that in the vacuum that's created in group dynamics, when no one says, why don't we try this, guys? When no one is willing to do that, if you literally just go, well, what about this, guys? People go, oh, something, like something to grab onto, something to hold onto, some kind of direction, something to build upon. And so I kind of noticed that as a young kid, I was seven or eight years old, I was in camp, 
We're supposed to build a robot. I remember telling my mom the story the day that it happened. We're supposed to build a robot. No one knows what to build. And I said, guys, why don't we try this? And then they started. I said, well, what if we, what if we could, what if we could do this thing? And what if we could add that? And I got like really excited coming up with all of these ideas and they just all followed. And I, I remember turning to my mom as she picked me up and saying like, Hey, I kind of just came up with stuff and everyone liked the ideas and they just kind of did it. And that was the thing that like snapped in my brain that I realized that I spotted that I identified. And so that it like, Hey guys, why don't we, that excitement, that uh, idea generation, that, that kind of what I've come to learn today in the entrepreneurial world is called being an entrepreneur or being a visionary. Um, I was doing all of those things in high school, but, but very, very much repressed, insecure, fear of failure, didn't want to risk anything, didn't want to put myself out there, felt like I had potential, felt like I was built for more, felt like I was going to be amazing and great, but, but only if you really knew me or maybe watched these little glimpses of it, would you see that confidence or would you see that, um, that excitement or would you see that, that I secretly believe that I am going to be successful? I am going to be awesome. I can do anything because I just bottled it up so much. Do you mind saying where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, North York, which is the suburb okay, yeah. of Toronto. So I grew up at Don Mills and Finch, yeah. uh, like in, in North York. And then when I was uh, 13, my mom and my stepfather moved us out to the middle of the country, like halfway, but seven kilometers from a town with 4,000 people and seven kilometers or, or like three, four miles for our American friends from a town with like 2,000 people, like 70 acres middle of nowhere. I'm in grade eight. I now have to take a school bus. I don't know anyone. And then so I spent the rest of my, uh, my high school career in a little town called Port Perry. Okay. Okay. A lot of people from Ontario listening to this would recognize Port Perry. That's right. And, and so Mark, like you've been running Phantom Media and we can speak about that for 15 years. Was there something, what was before that from a, a work career standpoint, or did you just jump into being an entrepreneur very early on? Both. Uh, I mean, so, so I'm kind of one of the older millennials. I'm, I'm 39 now. I think the oldest millennial, my sister's age or something, she's 40, 41, 42, something like that. So I'm kind of one of these early millennials. And uh, when, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to become an architect. That was my plan. You know, my, my family is a construction and a development family. They build homes and it's just like they build stuff. And so I was very comfortable with that. And it's like, I want to be an architect. And I loved the idea of it. I, I used to chart out and sketch out like floor plans as a kid of, of different things. And I loved building Lego with stairs and space and light and all this stuff. And I still love it today. But uh, in high school, I got scared. You know, I, I was I I did not do well in school until high school. And then I realized, oh, I've got a great memory. I can pick up things really, really, really fast, which means I don't have to try. And so like when you test well, when you have a great memory and you can pick up things really quickly, you test well. And when you test well, you don't have to have good study habits and you don't actually have to really learn anything. You just have to test well. And so uh, I hit my final year of high school and um, I was in OAC because I'm of that age and did, could not get my mind around chemistry. It was like the first class I was ever failing. And I got scared and I, and I thought, well, if I can't wrap my mind around chemistry, how can I wrap my mind around uh, algebra and how can I wrap my mind around first year engineering at, at Queens or wherever I was hoping to go in my life plan? 
And then how can I, and how can I, and it just snowballed. And today I would, I would go back and tell myself like, Mark, get a tutor, try a little harder, push yourself. You can do this. You can figure this out. This is not the hardest thing you're going to face in your life. But at the time I thought film school would be a lot more fun. And okay. So I went to film school. I graduated high school. I went to a private film school that was an 18 month course. Uh, I, I aced everything and didn't realize again, all these lessons didn't realize that schooling isn't about getting good grades. It's about what you put into it, what you learn, what you get out of it yourself, you know, uh, uh, the people you meet, the network you grow, all of those things. And so graduating, I started an internship at our national broadcaster, CTV. I was lucky enough to get in there. Uh, I started um, doing camera operating for a local TV station. I started doing teleprompting. Uh, and I did that for like nine months or a year. And I just hated freelance. Like I hated the uncertainty. I hated that that there was no feedback. Um, I had a I had an absolutely horrible experience on national television where I screwed up so badly. <laughs> I remember the night. I don't know if you want to get into really deep stories, but I screwed up so badly that I had uh, the director of a TV show and, and like yell at me so loud from the control room that every single person. And when I when I talk about like national broadcast, it was election night. Um, we have a panel of people on live television and I'm on headset and, and the, the director of it yelled so loudly at me that through the headphones, through the clear comms, it got picked up and broadcast out. That's how, that's how much he yelled at me. And oh my I'm, God. I'm like, and I'm like a 21 year old kid. I think it was yeah. 20 or 21 and, and I'm just, and I'm just freelancing. And it's just, I remember driving home that night thinking, it's over. I'm like, I'm done. And, um, it probably wasn't, but in my heart it was. And it was like, I never, I was on a really good trajectory, but, but it, I could have smoothed it out. I could have kept going. And I, and I, and I just, I just kind of gave up. So went into AV realized I went to film school. I'm not making any films. And then found myself, uh, eventually working at an internet marketing franchise okay. located here in Toronto. I was at the head office of this franchise. And we had 1,500 offices in 89 countries and territories. And I was responsible, responsible for producing uh, video content for training, for communications, for marketing, for franchise development. And uh, I spent a year and a half or two years there. And it was a great experience. Then I started Fanta. And so what was that jump to Fanta? Why were you like, because you sound like you're quite the entrepreneurial person, but why were you like, hey, I want to, I want to start something on my own? Do you remember to that time what was going through your your head? Yeah, I. Um, the reason I mentioned that I'm an early millennial is because it plays into it. Uh, for those who maybe are a little bit younger, you you may not realize how different millennials were than baby boomers and Gen Xers in kind of the corporate environment. So. First of all, myself and everyone that follows, and, and now it's pretty common practice. People accept this. But, but bef when I entered, it was, it was like I wanted to learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could. I wanted to move up as fast as I could. I wanted as much responsibility as I could. I, I wanted to taste everything. And I even remember finding myself in a job for like three months going, well, I've learned everything I'm going to learn in this job. And, and so I had to very carefully 
keep myself from bouncing from thing to thing. Because I also recognized, no, I did not learn everything in three months. That that year over year over year, you know, there's cycles for business and there's lots of stuff that you can't see coming. And everyone around me was saying, like, just slow down. You know, you talked about music. There's a Billy Joel song where he talks, he says, like, slow down, kid. You know, slow down, kid. You got, you can't have it all right away. Um, but us millennials at the time were constantly told by everyone older than us that we just wanted too much too fast and we had to put in our time and we had to slow down and we had to relax. And that really irked me. And so, um, you know, maybe it's uh, ego, maybe it's just our age, maybe it's because I was hungry to learn and learn and learn and wanted more and more and more. Um, but I just knew that working for someone else, I just believed, I, I grew up believing that one day I would just do my own thing. And, uh, and so when I left that internet marketing company, I had already spent six months poking ideas around in my head, talking, talking to the VP of my department about leaving and starting a company and what I could do. And then I started this company, uh, Phantom Media, um, by basically approaching the CEO and saying, Hey, Ron, we, we, I was really, really lucky. When I say I learned a lot of this company, I was, I was um, a department of two. It was me and I had a junior underneath me. But I didn't work with any colleagues at my level. I was at like, you know how companies have tiers of people? Yes. I was like, yep. I was like four levels down from the CEO. Okay. But my internal clients were all VPs, SVPs, CEO, board members, and owners. So I didn't sit with my department. I didn't sit with people of my level. I didn't speak to people one or two levels above me. I only spoke with the executives and I only worked with the executives. And I sat outside of the CEO's office beside his administrative assistant. And so I had an open door policy with all of the BVPs, with all of the C-suite people, with the founders. I worked with them all day, every day, because I was there making sure that I produced stuff for them. They were my internal clients. And so one day I, I, I went into Ron's office and I was like, can I talk to you about something? He had an open door policy. He said, sure. I said, can I, here's an idea. Like, what if, what if I left this company? And what if rather than you hire someone to replace me and have, have the overhead of salary, have the overhead of the equipment constantly having to be turned over and all of this stuff. And what if I left and you just outsourced everything to me. And here's why you might want to do that. When I worked at that company, we produced lots of stuff that, that didn't go anywhere. Because as long as I was on salary, one department could ask for something that took three months of my time, and then halfway through, decide to change their idea. And then we've just wasted a month and a half of our time. Meanwhile, a burning project from another department is sitting on standby waiting. And because there was no checks, balances, internal budgets, or anything else, it was just, hey, get Mark to do it. Get Mark and Andrew to do it. Why don't they jump on it? So I said, ah, if I leave, I'm off your payroll. I can work with other companies. And it brings some structure to, to these projects that right now we're wasting time on stuff that doesn't matter and stuff that does matter is under budgeted. And he's like, I love the idea. How long do you need? What can I do to help you? How can I help you transition? And, uh, and that's how I started Phantom Media. I was 23. My wife had no income. Quit my job from this company. My daughter was only three months old. We were living in Toronto. And I was only making like 45 grand a year at the time. Um, and I quit my company and that's how I started. Oh my gosh. 
this is going to be only audio, but if you saw the video of people listening, I was like, my jaw just was like dropping it. So three, you have a three month old, your wife's not making any income. You're 23 and you're just like, I'm going to do this. And is it, you know, you were 23 at the time, you've got a lot of time to, to make it up. And did you have a, a lot of confidence at that time that, Hey, I think I can succeed doing this. Uh, you know, con- confidence, sure. Hub- hubris, ego, again, back to those things where it's like, Often people think that entrepreneurs are risk takers and we do build up our risk profile over like very, very quickly. We build it up because otherwise you don't stay as an entrepreneur. And so today I am so much more comfortable with risk than um, most people in my life, but also uh, than I used to be. When I started, I remember I had to convince my wife. I remember sitting on our bed in our apartment of the Bayview and Finch in, in this apartment. Um, and I remember telling her like, just imagine, like, let's just play this out. Like, like, imagine if, if I can make 30 grand working for this company that I'm leaving this year, and I can do that for 10 other companies, that's $300,000. We are going to make so much money. That was literally the pitch. <laughs> and so it's not that I was a risk taker or I was confident. I was foolish. Entrepreneurs, when you start, we are foolish. We foolishly believe that we can do it better, that there's a way. And you, you can call that confidence, I guess. But I, I, again, I, I still don't even see it as confidence. I just think it's excitement um, mixed with you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how hard it's actually going to be. And so you just jump into it because you're kind of just optimistic and foolish. And, and that's different than confidence in my mind. Yeah, and even doing the math though, it it does make sense. And I I think sometimes yeah, it's I didn't, good to have realize some how of hard that. it would get to get those ten clients. <laughs> I think it's good to have some of that foolishness because it allowed you to push yourself to to into that next chapter. And by the way, like you know, I'm sure we could spend the whole podcast on speaking about Phantom Media and the lessons you've learned. But. In the first year of Phantom Media, I heard something like, what, you paid yourself an $18,000 salary in the second year. And then the third year, it sounds like you had a patch where you didn't make any money at all for for a period. So what are the lessons you look back on those times that you can still apply to today? And for the listener, what are some of the things that they can help themselves with when they're going through some, when it's not going to plan or it's not a straight line. Yeah. It's like, uh, this is what I love about your podcast, right? And I think anyone listening knows it's never a straight line. If you zoom out far enough, five years, 10 years, 20 years of lifetime, you can see how the dots are connected. <laughs> but in the moment, in that year, in that period, it's not. And so, yeah, I earned, I earned 18,000. So, so the company earned $96,000, I think, in the first year. Uh, and I took home 18 grand. It was below the poverty line. It was really, really hard. Um, things were very, very tight for probably four or five years. And when I say tight, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like depression era type strategies here. Like it was very hard. Um, but yeah. And then, and then by, by year three, so I started in 2006, 2007, uh, was able to bring home 18 grand. 2008, uh, I think I was making 30 or 32 grand. So still way less than I was earning before. Uh, but my, we were expecting our second kid. 
my wife's still at home. She's still not working. That's our household income. Our household income was 18 grand. And then we got it up to like 32 grand. We bought a house. <laughs> We're outgrowing our apartment. We're having my second son. It's 2008. Uh, business is, is pretty good. We're, we're like 150, 180 grand revenue or something like that. Um, and we're like, oh, well, like I remember thinking like, hey, when, when work comes, money is easy. Like it's so easy to make money when there's work. I didn't really anticipate the Great Recession that was coming. So we bought a house. We bought a house in August of 2008. We moved in. Uh, and then by the, by the fall and then through that winter, the Great Recession hit. And yeah, no, we used up all the money in the corporate bank account. I had one staff member. I had to let her go. I had no work. From, from our repeat clients. Um, I had burned through my network of people. And there was like a two or three month period where we had nothing, no revenue, no work, nothing at all. And so I, uh, I, I borrowed money, um, which all of my friends told me not to do, but I, I borrowed 50 grand and I hired a salesperson and uh, I was paying him, I think five or $6,000 a month. And six or eight weeks in, he quit. <laughs> Didn't didn't like so so there's there's ten grand off the fifty grand I borrowed gone, yes um, and and it was the day that I was going to England uh, for a project I got a project yes and I'm going to England for this project and I'm I'm forty five minutes from getting on the plane and he's like hey man I'm sorry I got to quit <laughs> what we just we just wasted all this time all this money got zero leads got zero business got zero out of it um I picked myself up I went in and hired a headhunter. I paid that headhunter, I think, five grand to find me someone. And then I, I found um, an amazing man, Daniel, Daniel Moskowitz, an amazing guy, took a chance on me. Um, but yeah, I, I paid him very little off of this line of credit that I had, or off this, yeah, this, this money I borrowed, and I didn't pay myself for six months. Every paycheck, I would run off the paycheck, I would pay the taxes on it, and I would slip the paycheck into my drawer, and I would never deposit it. Because the company didn't have any money. And so me paying myself from a company with no money to put in my personal account, that doesn't help anybody, right? And so week, every two weeks, a paycheck would get printed, it would go into a desk, and I would never cash it. The taxes would be paid on it, but I would never cash it because we just didn't have any money. And I'm paying the staff member. I'm paying the rent. I'm paying the marketing fees. I'm paying everything. We have no money. But it starts to pay off. And my wife hated this. My wife was so angry. She was so upset. Things were so tight. Um, but it starts to pay off, right? Daniel starts to help shift my thinking for how we could make our pitch better, how we can understand our targets better, how we can, how we can just sell better. He starts to work and work and work. And he realizes what's riding on it for him. He realizes what's riding on it for me. And that kicked off the engine. And, you know, and, and we were able to build some sales. We were able to, I was able to start paying myself. I was able to invest in one more staff member and then invest in another staff member. And then we were able to get new offices. And then it kind of just hockey sticked. It went from like barely scraping to get by with no money to like 350 grand revenue, I think. And then it became like 650 the next year. Then it became like 850 and then it became a million. And it was just like year after year after year. But the lesson that I still hold on to that I tell every person who's starting something is it is unrealistic. I say this to entrepreneurs. I say this to creatives. I say this to business people, to students. It's unrealistic to expect to see gains without making sacrifices. So 
the problem that most business people or entrepreneurs run into is they take a certain amount of money and they don't want to have a dip in their lifestyle. They don't mm-hmm. want to have a dip in their income. They don't want to have to think about downsizing their home. They don't want to have to stop taking vacations. They want to main, They want to hold on to what they have and get more. That's not how life works, <laughs> right? Like you have to sacrifice. Why not, day. Mark? Why not? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what about you, dude? What about, what about all, the, all the, the sacrifices that you've made and the investments that you've made and the time and commitment that, that you've put into things that, that even this podcast, right, that, that don't have a, a quote-unquote initial payoff. And yes. then three and four and five and six years later or a decade later, people look at you and they go, I want what you have. And you go, you can do it. Anyone can do what I've done. Most people do more than what I've done. I mean, I look at myself and this is part of the like, I don't feel good enough. I could do so much more. But the thing is, it's just like, just embrace the suck. Do the hard things. You know, on my on my background, I have this big poster for our listeners. It says, think big, be bold, say yes. That's like my motto because I think small by nature and I'm, and I'm not bold, even though people might think I am. And I say no to almost everything. I say, I say no. My, my wife says, you want to do this? No. My kids ask me something? No. An opportunity comes along to invest. I find the holes in it. Like, uh, that's us. We, that's we, we share some similarities there. And like you said, it is us. It's people. And you know, it, it is amazing. I love the background there. Think big, be bold, say yes. So you built Phantom Media and, and you know, over a, a million in revenue. Let's let's get a little, let's get real here. You like to get real fast from what I from what I understand. And I love that. So you've got this Phantom Media, it's grown. And then you come to this really harsh realization that. I'm just making successful people slightly more successful because I I believe what you were doing is creating like national campaigns and producing video and content spots. And, you know, you've even spoken about some of the amazing things you did, like flying to islands or seeing a 737 and filming in it. Why did you come to that harsh realization? And how did you pivot Fanta in your life to kind of what you're doing now? Yeah, the great, great question. Um, it's it's hard to admit it, but yeah, let's let's get real. So, um, every single person, every single client that we worked with, I really liked. I liked I liked the person, but what I've realized upon reflection is I made a few really big mistakes. First of all, I'm an entrepreneurial person. Uh, I'm an entrepreneurial person, and I had a team of people who were really great at working with entrepreneurial people. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to work for me, right? They wouldn't want to work in my company. They wouldn't like how there's no systems and there's no processes, and I'm always changing things and I'm throwing stuff at them all the time, and they got to think and they got to run. And so, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial team, who are our clients, right? Even the clients you mentioned, corporate clients, corporate contacts, corporate clients, corporate structure, corporate timelines. And so there's, there's money there, which is why I wanted to work with them. Um, we could do good work. We did, we did really good work. We put, poured our heart and soul into things. But after a few years, I, started, I, I, I really struggled with feeling like, um, and it's not even imposter syndrome. I, just, I struggled with the fact that I owned a really great video creative agency, video production company, creative agency. I own this thing, but, but I didn't enjoy any aspect of the process. And so 
for all of the people who say like, it's not about the destination, it's not about the result, it's about the process, it's about the journey, it's about the steps, it's about how you get there. I just was working so hard to try and build it to a stage where I would have, I could do nothing, I'd have nothing to do with it because I hated it. I, I don't like being on set. I find it very slow. I find it very tedious. I don't like the number of conversations we have to have to make a decision. I don't like how, I don't like how we have to think a million steps ahead for every possibility of everything that can go wrong when there are so many variables. Because if one little thing goes wrong in this very organic, creative process, a lot of clients will come back to you and say, like, how come you didn't see that coming? How come you didn't know? And so it really, you know, year after year after year, you can, you can grit your way through it. But I had a business coach that I was working with that I told him, I think in 2011 or 2010, like, I am just desperately trying to build this as fast as possible because I hate it so much I don't want to do it. And I, I really struggled. And I would, never, I would never admit that to anyone back then. I would never say that to anyone because I was very proud of the work. I was very proud of the team. And I was very, like, my identity was, was that I own this agency. But I just didn't like most of what we were doing. And I didn't want to be a part of it. And so I struggled with that. Um, and then, you know, after a few years, yeah, we're moving up and I'm, and I'm making a lot of moves to keep my team happy. That's what I was doing. I chose to do that. Um, you know, taking the company without a lot of vision and direction because I wasn't excited about it. And uh, there was a time at a Christmas party. We were having a Christmas party. We had all our team come together. I would typically give a speech or a toast. I would typically talk about the year we've had and the year where we're about to come. All that CEO visionary stuff, right? And there's like 18 of us there. And I just remember saying like, well, it's been a year. Next year will probably be a lot like this year. Whatever that means. Like that was my toast. <laughs> and it was just because I was just like, so like, well, and, and you know, we got, there, there's times where you get, you know, like the shit kicked out of you. Um, there was a day in May where we lost $380,000 in one day across three projects. Wow. One commercial campaign got put on hold. Another campaign got canceled. And then something um, that I knew was going to fall apart fell apart. But, but these aren't like potentials. These are like signed contracts. Yes. This is revenue. This is like just, just gone. Okay. Right. Like, so, so everything felt out of control. I felt, I realized I felt like a victim. I looked like a victim. I acted like a victim. And when you're stuck in that space for so long and you start to look at the people who are giving you projects, good people who care about their job, you get really cynical. And I hit a point where it's just like, yeah, um, I looked around and I was like, great. We, we just spent eight months, nine months of our lives and poured our hearts into this big campaign that, that on the outside, we should be really proud of. But I know, I know it doesn't make the company stronger that we worked for. I know it doesn't impact their revenue or their income. I know that if we succeed or if we fail, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is my contact, the person I'm working with. They look better to their boss or they look worse to their boss. This project that I am spending so much heart and soul and time on, that they are as well, though, at the end of the day, is just a footnote on their resume. It's just, it's just part of their CV. So that way, when they do their annual performance review, they can say, this is what I did this year. Or when they go to get another job, internally or externally, they can say, look at what I did. And that really bothered me. And, and I don't know if other people feel that way or not. I, I don't really talk about this. Honestly, I don't talk about this very much. 
Um, I talk about lot, lots of things, but I was out of, of sync, let's say, with um, my purpose and my passions and what I wanted to spend my days doing. And it took me like four years to unwind myself from this life that I had built. Uh, really hard years, but it took me a long time. And I ultimately had, had to basically like burn every, there was no pivot. There was no transition. It's like burn it to the ground, face the, the hard facts, spend the money you don't want to spend, have the hard conversations you don't want to have. You just got to burn everything to the ground and then hope that you can rebuild upon the ashes with the lessons that you've learned. Wow. What can you, what can you tell someone that's listening to this that has, has a big, big goal or dream and they just, they don't want to take that risk or bet on their own. I have this career coach who's been on Michelle Ferrari. We're good, good friends. Now she always says, you got you got to bet on your bet on yourself. And you obviously have developed that over time and taken big risks. Any advice there? Um, to the person who wants to start the new thing, uh, tons of advice for sure. I'm not sure if you're asking about the person who wants to start the thing or the person who realizes that they're trapped in the life that they thought they wanted. Because they're two very different things. Starting the thing, the risk is all perceived. Start it, it was more starting the thing. Yeah. 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 So if you want to start the thing, um, first of all, anything that you think is going to go wrong probably won't. Because if you're really worried about it enough, you're going to cover your ass. And the things that will go wrong, you would have never seen coming. <laughs> you, had, <laughs> you, you would never have seen them coming. So how could, you have how could you have prepared? How could you have avoided it? Like you just couldn't see it coming. So, so just know that, that everything that you're worried about, good, worry about it, but fix it. Like that's just your heart or your mind or your, your brain telling you, hey, Hey, anxiety. Hey, worry. Mark, listen up. You better do something about this. And I say, thank you. Thank you so much for, 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 for warning me. I'm going to go take some action and fix this. Cool. Don't worry about that stuff. Everything that you think will go wrong won't. The, nothing will ever be as bad as you think it will. Uh, because we think of things when we start like, I want to start a business. I'm going to quit my job. I am going to have six months to make money. And if I don't have six months, I lose everything. Like that's how we think. A hundred percent. Yeah. But, it, but in real life, nothing works that way. You, you quit your job. You start your company. Two months in, you realize it's going like garbage. That by the six month mark, it's going to all crumble around you. And then so you don't just, you don't just spend the next four months doing nothing. You go like, oh no, uh, oh gosh, I only have four months of runway left. What am I going to do? You hire a coach. You, you start talking to people. You start panicking. You start researching. You start figuring stuff out. You try something, right? And then you're like, oh, that didn't work. Um, I only have three months left. What should I do? Oh, this kind of worked a little bit. Let's go in on that. And then you do something and suddenly now it's not six months of runway. It's seven months of runway. And then it's not seven months of runway. It's nine months of runway. And that is how things work, right? You taking action and doing something teaches you, hurts you, helps you, does something that you can then take this information in and respond to. So going out and hiring someone, right? A lot of people are uncomfortable hiring someone. I got to pay $100,000 to hire someone. I don't have $100,000. No, you don't have to spend $100,000. You have to spend whatever their monthly salary is for the first two or three months. That's the commitment you're making to figure out if they're a good person or not. And if they're not, you haven't sacrificed or risked $100,000. You've risked 
whatever, 100,000 divided by eight, eight times three, 24,000. I don't know what it is. That's what you've actually risked. You've only risked 24,000. And even then, four weeks in, you might say, this is not working. They're out. So you've only risked eight grand, not 100 grand. And, and so this is where, when I said earlier, like I've trained my risk profile and I'm way riskier than I used to be, it's because I realized things aren't absolute. If they're not as big as you think, you can move, move a little slower and be really patient and let things come to you. And that is now how I start and pivot things. That's great. Those are great, great thoughts and great advice. What about, Mark, uncomfortable situations? You, like to, you seem to like to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. And I guess if we think about it, we all are uncomfortable as we grow because everything is uncertain in life. When you look at like, you've, I've heard you say like sleep, eating, health, body movement, and I think it's mindfulness, hydration. air hydration. You did, you did this hunk to chunk challenge. And then, you know, I, I heard your conversation with Evan Carmichael, who, who I, you know, follow on YouTube and, and, you know, you had this conversation with them where I don't think your wife wanted you to start on this fitness track again, but he was challenging you back. And then the reset, I think, yeah. And then I think you went for it and, you know, like, how do you, how do you now put yourself in those uncomfortable situations and how did you architect your schedule the way you did, um, from like when you get up to when you go to bed and do you think that rigorous approach works for a lot of people or do you have to be a certain type of person for that to really pay off? Yeah. So, um, I, I just want to clarify, I don't like uncomfortable situations. Okay. Um, but I put myself in them mm -hmm. and this is an important thing because I, I didn't start working out until four years ago. Not really. I was, I did, I, I was not athletic. I was not competitive. I wasn't in sports. I didn't go to the gym. I didn't eat well. And it was when I started hitting, you know, like uh, a size 40 pants, uh, I was hitting like 200 and I think my heaviest was 236 and I'm only five foot nine or five foot 10. Um, that I was like, oh, okay, things need to change. The problem was I had heard from, from people who go to the gym, let's say runners, right? Runners who were like, oh man, I'm addicted to running. Or people who go like, oh, if I don't go to the gym and get that high, I just, I know I need it. And so in my head, I heard that and thought, oh, these people love the gym. I don't love the gym. I don't love running. I must not be like them. And it was only when I started going to the gym and started running that I realized, oh, no one likes this. No one likes uncomfortable situations. No one likes running so hard for so long that your lungs are burning. No one likes working out so heavy that it hurts in the moment. But the people who do this time and again, and I've become this person now when it comes to exercise, you understand that it's good for you. You start to love the pain because you, because in your brain, it's not pain. You realize it's gains. You start to run through things. So to this morning, just before an hour before a podcast, I, I was at my gym. We're doing a 12 minute run for distance. How far can you run in 12 minutes? Go. I didn't, I mean, I, I pushed myself, but I, I didn't go insane. I didn't go crazy. I know I could have given more. Um, I ran whatever, 1.66 miles in 12 minutes. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But I didn't enjoy most of it. <laughs> and so I want to clarify that for people because 
because it is once you realize that the person who makes this big investment is probably scared, but they do it anyway. The person who decides to lose weight and and sacrifice, you know, the food that they love, it doesn't mean that they're happy that they're no longer eating stuff. The people who have to end a relationship because it's toxic still miss that person, right? Like this is this is the truth of it. And so once you understand that, embrace that. Okay. Now with that said, yes, I do like exercising because. I, if I don't exercise, like yesterday is my recovery day, and man, I felt terrible. So I exercise a lot. I don't like getting up at 4 a.m. And to be honest, I haven't gotten up at 4 a.m. consistently um, for the last few months. Um, I've been kind of worried about my sleep a bit. So like this morning, I, my alarm went off at, at 4.25, and I reset it and I gave myself another hour and a half to sleep, and I got up at 6. Um, so, but, but I know that when I get up at 4 a.m. consistently, I feel like a champion. And when I get up at four, I, um, I get tired at around 8 PM, which means it's easier for me to go to bed at nine. And if I go to bed at nine, I can get up at four consistently. But also if I go to bed at nine, I don't snack late at night. Hmm. If I don't snack late at night. I don't put on as many pounds because I'm not eating as many calories and the nighttime snacking, which is like my Achilles heel, um, so, so like I've, I've learned through just trying things like, okay, if I get up at four, I not only get more done cause it's the quiet hours. I'm more productive at work. Yesterday I got up at four 15. I worked for 14 hours yesterday. Felt great. Felt great putting in 14 hours of work uh, on my company and, and the stuff we're doing. Um, and I was, I was tired. So I, I went to bed, but if I can get up early and I can get the hydration, I can get more work done. I can feel more pro- proactive and, and I can get more efficiency done. I can give myself time during the day to work out without feeling guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because I used to not work out because it's like, well, when am I going to work out? Am I taking this out of family time? I'm taking this out of work time. I can't. No, I don't feel guilty about the fact that this morning I spent an hour and a half driving to my gym, going to the gym and coming back at, at 930 in the morning because I work so early in the morning. So now I'm not feeling guilty about that. I'm not feeling selfish. I can stop working at 4 p.m. and go for a walk every day with my wife never used to do that. I used to, I used to come home at 6 or 7 p.m., barely see my kids because I had, I had to work. And now I don't feel guilty about that because I get up early because I'm jumping on my work right away. And so once you start to figure out what works for you, you don't have to get up at 4 a.m. Get up at 10 a.m. I, I don't care what the hours are, but get up consistently, go to bed consistently, drink more water than you think you should, move and limit what you eat, like the types of food you eat. And if you do that for two, three, four weeks consistently without going crazy, I 100% guarantee you, you will feel better. You will lose weight. You will gain strength. You will gain confidence. You will look better. Like all of these things happen. And, and once you can do it consistently, like it, it doesn't, it's, it's not hard, it, but it will change your life. So true. And I, I really do like that you've been able to find that time where you do stop working. And I'm sure it's not, you know, five days a week, it's the same time, but you, you make an effort, a conscious effort or intentional effort 
to hang out with your kids and your wife because you've got four. And that's a very important part of your life that you've seemed to fit in very well or as well as possible. Yeah. I mean, I like I would <laughs> I would rather just work all the time. Like I would rather only do what I want to do when I want to do it for my own interests. Like that, that would be ideal, but who lives that way? Right. Like, so, so on one side of the spectrum, too many of us are doing everything for others. We're feeling judgment. We're doing it because they're guilting us or, or, or we feel bad or we're worried they're going to get mad at us. So we're doing everything for others on the other side, which I just shared with you is my dream. I'd rather spend every minute of every day doing whatever interests me without any responsibilities for others. Like that is what I actually secretly really want. But rather than, rather than lean to the, to the first side where most of us are over the last few years, as I said, it, it's taken me like four years to unwind myself from that and make the sacrifices. I'm now way more on the other side of the spectrum where I can do what I want when I want. Um, and deep down in my mind, I always thought if I do this, how will I make money? How will I serve others? How can I build a team? How can I do these things? Um, surely, you know, the slower path that's less stressful couldn't possibly work. And yet it does. It, it, it does work. You're afraid it won't. You're afraid that if you just stop the hamster wheel that you're on, everything will fall apart. But again, once you get comfortable kind of burning everything to the ground and knowing you have lots of time to rebuild, um, you don't worry about that so much. That's incredible. I, I mean, we could, we could go on for an, another full hour with this podcast. And I think just that last four years in particular is so impactful. And, and by the way, I won't share this podcast with your wife about the wanting to work all the time. <laughs> she knows. I tell, <laughs> she already knows. I figured she knows. that. You didn't, you didn't see the yeah. me and Evan episode where I came up with this idea if I could work. I wanted to work for 12 days straight and then take five days off, 12 days yep. on, five days off, 12 days on, five days off, because context switching is really hard for me. And, uh, and Evan was like, this is not a good idea. And so we brought my wife onto the podcast and she was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so, so like, they still make fun of me for this. Like, Mark, why did you think? I think it's a great idea. I think if I could work for 12 days straight and then just take like a vacation, 12 days straight, take a vacation. That seems like the ultimate life for me. Seems great. And I think that's super relatable. I have trouble transitioning as well. Sometimes like go into weekend mode and then Monday mode, I have trouble flipping back. I want to be respectful of your time, Mark. Where can people find you? I know you've got like 24,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I even went back, you can see like Mark's first video that he just put up at a conference. And like, you didn't really know what you're doing then, but you went for it. And like, holy crap, you've got some videos with over 350k views. I, I'm kind of into listening to speakers, even when I'm working out and you've been on clubhouse a lot with Les Brown. I, I noticed and had him on your podcast. Where can people find you and what are you up to now? Well, you know, if you head over to YouTube uh, or any kind of your audio podcast app, you can certainly check out. We do hard things. Uh, you can Google my, my name, Mark Drager or we do hard things um, to check it out. Or you can head over to Instagram if you want to drop me a DM or a follow, it's me. I don't have a bot. I don't have a VA, you know, helping me with that stuff. So if you send me a message on Instagram at Mark Traeger, that's cool. Or if you want to check out our agency, our creative agency, Phantom Media, 
uh, it's Fanta.com and that's P-H-A-N-T-A.com. And as the last question I've got to ask is someone, someone who share this, you know, a lot of times I've gotten up in my own career life and, and not felt enough. Is there something or are there a few things you keep in your mind now that really, really help you um, get through that? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, yes. If you start to do these things that I've talked about and give yourself time, and when I mean time, I mean like two or three years, forgive yourself for the past things that you did because you did the best that you could. Realize that most of the things you're holding on to were not really your fault. Get comfortable saying what you want and what your dreams are and not worrying about other people's judgment. Like, like basically, from the outside, you may look more like an asshole. You may come across more as a bitch. But in fact, all you're doing is putting yourself first. And, and honestly, who cares what those people think? Because would you rather them be comfortable with you, but you hate your life, yourself? And I say hate, and everyone says, I don't hate. Trust me. You are not happy. You're not happy. And so, like, would you rather wake up happy and excited, but know that there's a few people who may throw shade at you while others secretly admire what you're doing? Yes, I would rather do all of those things. So forgive yourself. Start to dream. Start to say yes. Start to challenge yourself. And you will find over the course of a few months, over the course of a few years, like my wife just today, she had this amazing opportunity come her way. And I said, and I said to her, where were you one year ago? Remember where you were one year ago. We, us here in Ontario, we were in lockdown. Uh, she, my wife didn't have a lot of opportunities. She had just gotten this job that was put onto standby. Then she was let go three weeks into it when we finally opened up, like just up and down and up and down. And, and today, one year later, not really that much time, totally different person, tons of new experiences, great new opportunities coming her way. She's a badass now. And she's a fraction of who she's going to be in five or 10 years. So do all of those things. Give yourself time, forgive yourself. And trust me, if you keep checking in on yourself, you're going to like, you are going to be amazed at what you're capable of. That's amazing. That's, I, I had uh, the Harris popping up my arm, my arm, as you were saying, you know, especially the forgive yourself one, um, because I think we did the best we can uh, at times throughout our career and throughout our life. And I will recommend people should listen to your episode on the five books that will change your life on the, we do hard things podcast especially the first two books you mentioned, the one with Victor Frankel and the meaning. one um, with Brana Ware, is it? Bonnie, Bonnie Ware, the Bonnie five Ware. regrets of the dying. <laughs> yeah, incredible stuff. But Mark, thanks so much for doing this, for reaching out uh, and, and for doing everything you've done on your podcast and your platform for people. Thank you, Jordan. I, I so appreciate what you're doing as well, man. So this could be a, a giant love fest, but listeners... If you haven't subscribed already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast for Jordan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it, man. There you have it. Thanks for checking out It's Not a Straight Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
follow on Spotify. And if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career in life.